Welcome back to Research Bites. With me, as always, is Lachlan and Imtiaz. And today we're chatting with Allegra Angeloni, PhD student at the Garvin Institute of, in Sydney, who's studying epigenetics and evolution. Um, so the first thing we usually like to do uh, on our podcast is ask how you got into research and, uh, where, and how you got into where you are today. Yeah, so I don't think it was really a straightforward um, story. Um, when I was growing up, I don't think I ever really seriously considered becoming a scientific researcher. Um, and that's not to say that I didn't like science or that I thought it was a bad career path. Um, it was more that I just never really thought about it. I didn't know any academics, I didn't know many scientists. Um, and at school it wasn't ever really presented as a career option. Um, but when I was in high school, I really loved human biology. And I really wanted to do something in health science, um, in particular a job where I was able to work with patients. Uh, so I was really interested in something like um, uh, speech pathology. I really like linguistics and learning languages. Um, I think it's very logical. Um, well, it depends on the language. <laughs> um, Not English then. <laughs> um, I was interested in um, maybe something like nutrition or occupational therapy or nursing or medicine. At one point, I was interested in dentistry. Um, so I knew that to have a career in any of these fields, I needed to have a strong background in biology and chemistry. So I chose both biology and chemistry for um, the HSE, the high school certificate. For any listeners who didn't complete their schooling in New South Wales, it's the final exams that you do um, at the end of high school. Um, and I found myself just really loving biology. In particular, we had units on genetics where we learnt the basics of gene expression or protein synthesis. Um, and you know Mendelian genetics. We, we also did a unit on human evolution, which I just thought was really, really cool. Mm. Um, and I think it helped that my biology teacher, uh, she had a PhD in genetics. I think it was related to um, ecology. Um, she was really intelligent, but also really down to earth and really approachable and just communicated science to us really clearly. Um, so I ended school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought, you know, I liked genetics. I liked molecular biology, so I'll just do a generalist science degree. So I did it at the University of New South Wales, UNSW. Yep. I did a general science degree and I ended up majoring in genetics and microbiology. Um, and I really loved uni. Um, I, I particularly liked my genetic subjects, um, but also my microbiology ones. So I did medical microbiology, but also environmental which was really interesting. And I spent a bit of time working in a lab at UNSW that, um, that worked on um, archaea, which are a type of microbe that live in hypersaline lakes in Antarctica um, and looking at phylogenetic relationships. Wow. Um, yeah, that was really cool. Is that, so that just sounds really interesting. <laughs> Environmental <laughs> microbiology, is that like how the environment influences microbiota? Like, you know, changes in the environments and stuff? Is it related yeah, to yeah, well, it's a, it's a pretty big field. Um, a lot of what we learned was sort of how microbes evolved to adapt to their environment. Mm. Um, and it was really interesting, like within one lake, you'll have several different niches, um, uh, microbes occupying different niches, mm. which was, yeah, it was really interesting. But I thought, you know, I enjoy it, but I don't know if it's what I want to specialize in. Mm. Um, I've had a few lectures on epigenetics, which I can explain more in a bit. 
Uh, my third year in a human genetics subject, I had a lecture from my now supervisor, Osrun Bogdanovich. He was a guest lecturer um, where he spent a lot of time discussing epigenetics, what it is, um, what we can learn from it. And he was working at the Garvin Institute, which is where I am now. And I'd heard it was, um, there was really great science happening there. Um, so I reached out to him and he let me do honors in his lab. So our lab focuses on DNA methylation in particular, which is an epigenetic mark. And my honors project was a technical evaluation of sequencing methods that are used to detect DNA methylation. And then I stayed on for a PhD where I'm now looking at DNA methylation in a few different contexts, but I focused on invertebrates and evolution, which I'm really enjoying. Awesome. So you, I was gonna say, say before, you mentioned how you know you wanted to get into like like health and you wanted yeah. to get into like human. You like you wanted to be a dentist. You wanted to be a speech <laughs> pathologist, and and then it sounds like you obviously you know, you're doing this human genetics. Was there something about non-human genetics, or was there something about the the sort of non-human aspects that really caught your attention? Was was that like a yeah it's, a slow progress, or was it like oh I want to do this? You know, it's really interesting. Um, Sometimes I think about what it is exactly about epigenetics and evolution that I enjoy or that I'm drawn to, mm -hmm. and I feel like I can't really say exactly <laughs> what. Um, but I just, I don't know, I just find it really fascinating. Um, you know, epigenetics, I'm not sure how familiar everyone is with so epigenetics. It would be good for our non-science listeners to get their heads around what epigenetics are. Could yeah. you explain that for them? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess, the way I describe epigenetics to a lay audience is if you were to think about any organ in your body, like um, a heart, for example, um, your heart has all the genes that are necessary for it to be any organ. So it could be as all the genes to become an eye or to become a liver or to become anything. So every organ in your body has the same DNA, um, but they're all differentiated organs. So, um, this is because of gene regulation. So DNA interacts with proteins, um, which means that certain genes will be expressed in certain tissues. Um, and epigenetics is a really major player in this. So for a really long time, scientists thought that the DNA sequence itself, which sort of contains a blueprint for your genes, as well as uh, sequences which regulate um, when and where your genes are expressed, they thought that that was the, the most important thing in determining um, uh, gene expression, I guess. Um, but then it, it came out that there's an additional layer called uh, the epigenome. So epi is Greek for above or in addition to, um, which effectively is chemical and structural modifications to the DNA, which impact how our genes are expressed, but don't change the DNA sequence itself. Uh, so a lot of it is related to, um, I guess DNA can exist in two states. One, it can be physically quite open, which means that um, there's greater capacity for um, particular proteins and enzymes to bind, which drive gene expression, or it can be quite, quite closed. So that prevents much gene expression occurring. So we're particularly interested in something called DNA methylation, which is a chemical tag. Um, and although historically it has been associated with the more closed DNA and, you know, silencing of genes, mm. um, recent studies have shown that it's actually quite enigmatic. Uh, it's very context dependent. 
Um, and so we use evolution as a model to study how DNA methylation contributes to, you know, how and when genes are expressed. And is, are those chemical tags, those are directly on the DNA? Yeah, so they're found at particular, you, you might, if you did some genetics in high school, you might remember that DNA is made up of four building blocks, um, cytosine, guanine, thymine, adenine. Um, and it is found most commonly at cytosines, followed by the guanine. Um, and in, in humans and other model organisms like mouse or zebrafish, I love using zebrafish a lot as a model organism, we have a lot of this tag in our genome. Right. So... And this is the, the CPG. CPG. Thing. I was got a bit confused. What's... Uh, someone explained to me recently, but I think I may have forgotten. What's the P? Is the it, P, it's, it's a phosphate bond. Phosphate between. bond, of course. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so regions on our genome that are rich in these CG um, sequences, they will be methylated, like tagged with this particular chemical modification. Is that what you say? Well, not necessarily rich in the CPG sequences. It's just any CPG site. Which is pretty common given you've only got four nucleotides to work with, right? Well, interestingly, um, it's actually very... Uh, when, when the cytosine is methylated, because the methyl group, it attaches to uh, the carbon on the cytosine ring, um, it's actually quite unstable and it's very highly mutable, so it is really underrepresented in uh, genomes where there's a lot of DNA methylation. Um, but the exception to this, um, and please, if anything's unclear, just interrupt me. <laughs> yeah. um, the exception to this global hypermethylation is something called CPG islands. So they're CPG rich sequences and they just don't gain DNA methylation. So just to try to make it quite clear in my head, so we have <laughs> DNA and then there are regions uh, with, where the CG, and we call them C, CG, CPGs. Yeah. And those are hypermethylated, hyper, yeah. so overly methylated. Yeah. But then there are other regions where there's lots of CPGs together, which is called a, an island, right? A CPG island. CPG yeah. island, which are hypo methylated so no methylation yes yes so it seems like in terms of regulating genes the specific patterns of these chemicals on the dna is really really important right yeah yeah definitely and is is that so if you have hypermethylation and hypomethylation how do they affect the actual transcription of the gene well that's a that's a great question it's um not really clear um, so originally it was thought that if you, if you had a lot of DNA methylation at the CPG islands, so they're found at sites of what are called um, transcription initiation. So earlier I mentioned these regulatory sequences. So they're just short DNA sequences which can be located near a gene or far away from a gene. Um, and they undergo epigenetic, epigenetic uh, modifications which will then impact how the associated gene is expressed. So it was thought that if these CPG islands gained DNA methylation, then that would silence the gene, so the gene wouldn't be expressed. Mm. And it was thought that if, it, if the DNA methylation wasn't there, then the gene would be expressed. But then, uh, with the advent of massively parallel sequencing, so, you know, sequencing of entire genomes, <laughs> became really unclear what it was doing, because it was found that 
Most of these CPG islands didn't have any DNA methylation, and that was independent of whether or not the gene was expressed. So I know there's a lot happening. I guess the, the takeaway message is that DNA methylation is a chemical tag, which is really ubiquitous in genomes, but it's not really clear what it's doing there. Um, and we focus specifically on these regulatory elements called CPG islands. Um, evolution is really useful for understanding how DNA methylation contributes to gene regulatory processes because the distribution of DNA methylation in the genome is so variable hmm. between animals. So in, we, we sort of distinguish into two major groups. You have vertebrates and invertebrates. So vertebrates are humans, obviously. <laughs> Us. Mice, zebrafish, you know, other common model organisms. Um, and invertebrates are uh, Drosophila fruit fly, C. elegans, roundworm, um, <laughs> you know, um, sponges, oysters. What was the other one? Lam yeah. Is it lamprey? You, lamprey, you work with yeah. Some pretty, some pretty hectic. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, um, what, yeah. What organisms do you actually work with? Uh, I think it's something like 12. Across all the studies I work on, it's like 12 animals. So I've been doing a project on mice, um, which is pretty boring. <laughs> no, it's just a joke. Um, uh, zebrafish, I love using zebrafish as a common model organism. Right, so people use zebrafish, they look like just normal fish. Is it because, well, they don't look like normal fish, they're translucent, right? You can see through them? Uh, yeah, so when um, they're a really good model organism for development, right. yeah. yeah, because you can just sort of grow them in, in a dish and you can look at them under a microscope mm. and you can see all the stages really clearly. Yeah, uh, Yeah. so you, you can also use them if you want to look at how a gene is expressed. You can insert the gene in with a fluorescent tag mm. and look at how that fluorescent tag is um, uh, lighting up, I guess, in different cell types during development. Mm. So it is a really interesting model organism. It's also used for studies of immunology, uh, neuroscience. Yeah, so we use it for... It's one of those things, like, I think some, some people put a lot of weight on these, like, model organisms, mm. but I think it's just, like, mainly a product of history, that someone was like, oh, let's work on this thing, it's cheap, and we can, you know, it's translucent, we can do these things, and then we started learning so much about yeah. that organism yeah. that it would be silly to move on to another one because we've yeah. generated so much information about mm. this, yeah, this well, one species. Actually, I often say this. The question that I get a lot, particularly when I present at Garvin, which is a medical research institute, is how, how is this you know, <laughs> yeah. clinically applicable? <laughs> something yeah. like that. <laughs> um, a question. Yeah, I, I, I never <laughs> asked that question myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I understand why I get that question. Like, obviously, it's, it's important to think about why you do what you do. Yes. Um, but I think I think it's um, I think there's a lot we can learn from evolution that would not be at least in the context of epigenetics that would not be evident if you were to just focus on humans alone. Mm -hmm. And DNA methylation is a really good example of this. Um, yeah, it's it's really it makes us question exactly in in what context DNA methylation is mm -hmm. has a role in. Uh, gene expression or where it's just there because of evolution hmm. yeah it's really it's um, really interesting so these uh, patterns or these regulation with methylation are they consistent across your organisms um, like do you see consistent patterns or do you see very different patterns and are there patterns that are specific to vertebrates but not invertebrates 
Yeah, so, so most vertebrates will have a lot of DNA methylation in their genomes. Um, they'll be very heavily methylated, and the exception is CPG islands, which I was discussing earlier. In invertebrates, it's much more variable. So there are some species like um, uh, roundworms, the elegans, or drosophila, which is fruit fly, which have no DNA methylation in their genomes. Mm. There are some species like um, oysters um, or amphioxus, which have fully methylated domains, but also fully unmethylated domains. And there was a really interesting paper, which came out a few years ago, which found that sponge, which is one of the most basic animal types, has a lot of DNA methylation in its genome, similar to humans or similar to vertebrates. And it's not really well understood why that happened mm. or what the purpose of that is. Um, so you do see some patterns which are retained throughout evolution, um, but there are also a lot of questions that come up. Why is DNA methylation present in this context, in this species, but not in this mm, other yeah. one? I, I was reading in the, um, you know, the papers you sent over that, I can't remember the species, but there's some, probably an invertebrate, that uses methylation as a sort of like a, a mark of self mm. that things, or maybe, a, a, I can't remember if it was hypo or hypermethylated. Yeah. That, was <laughs> that must be a thing in, all the time in, in, in the literature. But um, yeah, it was quite interesting how it, was, it wasn't necessarily using as a, to control transcription or gene expression. It was using it to, yeah, mark self and non-self in a sort of like immune kind of way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Which paper? <laughs> 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 yeah, it was one anime. I thought it was really interesting as well. Oh, it, was like a, it was like a small part of it. I don't know why okay. we both. Yeah, but I thought it was, it was like almost a whole different immune system. Yeah. Like when your immune system hasn't developed yet. Yeah. You Real basic. use it based on chemicals. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll probably. But then that leads me to a question is is. Um, DNA methylation always controlling gene expression or I guess maybe that's what you're saying is that you see you know um, methylation and you're like well we don't know what the function of that is I guess yeah I guess yeah. That, that's the question right yeah that is a big question what what is DNA methylation doing is it just there or is it really important for controlling how genes are expressed um, and it's crazy there are so many different contexts in which you can study DNA methylation and really DNA methylation is just a small part of the puzzle mm. like there's so much going on um, some things which are really heavily studied some things which really aren't considered um, but yeah I, I think it's really interesting but also complicated so what are the, the big questions or the big question that you're aiming to answer with your PhD study yeah, so I guess I guess the question that I'm I, I'm working on a few different projects. So what I've been talking about with the CPG islands, we're just interested in understanding how DNA methylation contributes to um, CPG island gene regulation. So it's sort of thought that CPG islands only exist in these genomes where there's a lot of DNA methylation because they're defined by the fact that they don't have any. So if we can show that they're in invertebrates which have really variable levels of DNA methylation then we can effectively demonstrate that they can exist independently of DNA methylation content. Yeah. Um, I also, yeah, I work on a few different things. I was really interested in um, developmental processes. Mm. So when DNA methylation is established, it's pretty stable, it's there. Mm. But during development, it's actually really highly dynamic. So if you think about, you know, you have a sperm and an egg, they're both differentiated 
cells and they need to come together to create a zygote. And that is driven, at least partly, by DNA methylation dynamics. I have a question. I, I really like the idea of the dynamics. I was going to ask that as well. Like, are these things super transient and super uh, environmental? So like stimuli from the environment that then changes your complete methylation patterns. Is yeah. it that quick or is it more of sort of like your methylation and your epigenetic uh, sort of landscape of an organism develops over, you know, hundreds of years? Or... Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. It's a very big question. Mm. So in, as I mentioned, in, develop, in development, it's quite dynamic and we study those dynamics in different species and what's, what's retained through evolution or what's different and how that might contribute to the biological processes of that organism. Um, there are so many studies on um, environmental factors which impact DNA methylation. I came across a paper once on comparing DNA methylation profiles in people who meditated and those who didn't. Um, I think the, the most common example, and I hope I explain this correctly, um, is the one of bees. So if you, if you feed, if you have um, uh, larvae, if you feed them with royal jelly, which is a particular, it's got uh, like water and simple sugars and vitamin C and um, particular proteins and minerals and enzymes. Um, and then one group, you keep feeding them the royal jelly, but then the other group throughout development, the other group you feed them um, um, just um, nectar and pollen. The group which continuously get royal jelly uh, will become queen bees. So they're the ones who sort of... Uh, That's how Beyonce. <laughs> yeah. So, so they live longer, they lay more eggs, um, and the ones who switch their diets will become worker bees, so they live much shorter. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a really good, yeah. like, I, I think I've, I've heard that before too, actually. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty cool. That, that, that's a good way of, like, illustrating the difference between genetics and epigenetics, I guess, mm -hmm. is that these, assuming that they're larvae, they're from like the same um, parents, is that a term? Yeah. Um, they're going to have very similar, if not identical, genomes. However, this environmental stimuli, if you will, this like food or whatever the proteins are doing, is changing their methylation status and is changing like their whole body and all these different attributes of their, um, their, their phenotype, you could say. Yeah. So I guess that's really like... Um, yeah, a really nice illustration of, of the differences between, between the two. Yeah. yeah I have another question. Um, so, like, we know uh, genetics are inherited and transferred through generations. I don't know. I, I, I think most of our epigenome is sort of stripped during, um, in, uh, during fertilization and the growing zygote from memory, and then they develop their own. But is there an inheritance of epigenetic factors from your parents to your daughter? Yeah, so. there's, there's inheritance. Um, so DNA methylation on fertilization is, it depends on the species, but if we think about uh, humans, hmm. um, you know, when the sperm and egg come together, it's, it's pretty much erased. Hmm. Um, and then the DNA methylation is re regained as um, the, the zygote differentiates hmm. into uh, many different type, different into different cell types. Yep. Um, 
There are other epigenetic factors which uh, have been shown to be inherited, like uh, small RNAs. Uh, Lockie, you might know a bit more about them, um, which, which is really interesting. Um, and there have been some studies which, which show how environmental factors can um, uh, affect how they're, how they're inherited. Mm. Uh, so that's a really interesting field. I'm certainly not an expert on that. Um, Yet. Yeah. 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 How does um, the so this is going to be maybe a bit of an annoying question as well. um, (laughs) If we think about uh, (laughs) if if we're thinking about vertebrate evolutionary epigenetics, how can that help us understand um, sort of two questions? Are there (laughs) diseases in humans? that we know have a very strong epigenetic cause? And do you think the research that you're doing will help sort of bring about some of those highlights and and, um, insights into maybe what we can do about those diseases? Yeah, so I I think think it's a fair question. Um, So there are many diseases which have um, epigenetic changes um, implicated in them. So there's, uh, cancer is probably the most common example. Um, so you can have um, DNA methylation present at a gene that's supposed to be expressed, so like a tumor suppressor gene. Mm. Um, so then it stops being expressed. Or you can have the opposite where you have DNA methylation removed from a gene um, which may you know, um, promote the formation of a tumor. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, uh, there are neurological disorders which are associated with DNA methylation. Um, uh, they're, they're, yeah, it's, it's definitely implicated in, in disease. Yeah. Um, and I guess what, what we're trying to understand is in a normal, healthy person mm. or animal, how, what is DNA methylation doing? And is DNA methylation contributing to regulation? If we understand how it functions in a normal state, we can understand how that might be associated with a disease. Mm-hmm. If it's not really doing anything, then can we necessarily conclude that in in a disease that that's what's driving the disease yeah um yeah i mean that was i guess it's kind of hard to find the without knowing what the function of it is in like the first place it's hard to work out how that's contributing to disease Mm. it's like well are these changes is this like just a correlation is it a causative like is it just exactly yeah there and where we're just looking for something like oh it's it's methylation must be you know um yeah that's really challenging yeah so I guess ultimately what we're trying to do is understand the, the fundamental mechanisms that drive gene gene expression yeah. and how misregulation of these genes might be implicated in diseases. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but that's, yeah. It's definitely a, a hot research topic at the moment, especially in cancer. Mm. Um, so you, you earlier you talked a little bit about you know, the passion you had for getting into the health sciences. Do you feel like that's still something that's there with the work you're doing now and it's still part of what, what drives you to keep going? Yeah, that I am... Um, you can say no. It's okay. No, I think, I, think um, I do really love my PhD and I love what I study. Um, and I feel very fortunate to say that because I know that's not the case for, for everyone for a number of reasons. Um, I think a big part of that is the fact that I love 
problem solving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My family all love problem solving. Do you know that show on the ABC, Letters and Numbers? <laughs> yeah. Where, oh, yeah. Yeah, you have, like, they, they give you um, some some letters and you need to make the longest possible word you can with them. I think yeah. that's how it works. And, yeah. like, with numbers, you have to make do certain equations. Mm. And I just love that every day is problem solving. Um, sometimes I, I do think it would be nice to work with people who are directly affected by... Um, I know I don't work on disease strictly, but I think it would be nice to, to work with people who are um, impacted by disease and try and help them. Um, but I guess that, that um, what's the word? The, the satisfaction of doing that can be sought from, from other activities. Yeah, from psychics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I love them, yeah. I pet them, I guess, no. So yeah. that's some really good advice, I think, for early career researchers or budding research students, is that, you know, it's, it's really a problem-solving journey, mm. you know, regardless of how big or small or what type of project you're working on, you, you're going to be doing problem-solving, right, a lot along the way. Is there a little bit of advice you, if you were able to time travel and go back to Allegra as a first year PhD student, what yeah. advice would you give yourself then? As a first year PhD student, I would, or to any first year PhD student, I would say that if you're, you are succeeding at everything and doing, you know, everything's coming really easily <laughs> to you, then you, you're not challenging yourself enough. <laughs> you need to, you know, go out and seek those challenges and try something that's a bit harder and yeah, I mean, I, I feel like mistakes are the only real way you can grow as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Or else you're just that something that you experienced the first year you were like frolicking through the field <laughs> and, and then it really kicked in? Is that, is that what you mean? Or? Uh, my first year was full of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's important to have people around you who are willing to, you know, give you some tough love, but also yeah. help you through it. Help you through it. Yeah. And, you know, we, I think we've talked about it previously in some of our sessions is that Almost that, you know, having a little bit of a big, well, a big beginner mindset mm. going into everything you do, um, not just in research, really. Like, I think it's good life advice in general. Totally. It's good to suck at stuff regularly. Definitely. <laughs> and yeah. find your way to it. It's humbling. Yeah. 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 I always used to imagine that you're just a sponge. Like, everywhere you walk, you're a sponge and any tidbit of knowledge that someone could throw at you just suck it in because like yeah. you know no better yeah. yeah and you'll look back and think oh why did I do all those you know I'm in my third year now you look back and you, I often think why did I do this and this and this in my first year but I, I wouldn't know that that's not the right thing to do now if mm. I hadn't have gone, gone through, through that right? yeah yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for uh, chatting with us today it's really great I'm keen to um, to see how this research kind of ends up in your in your last year next next year um, and yeah we'll catch everyone back for our next episode um, next time oh, thanks. thank you for having me thank you Allegra. thank you